This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Welcome to Sightlines, your guide to the visual arts in and around Dunedin. I'm Sally McMillan and this programme is brought to you by the Dunedin Public Art Gallery Society. In today's show, we're moving beyond Dunedin to explore the circuitous and serendipitous route to growing a significant regional gallery in Gore. But first, I'm talking to Ross Curry about what's new in the Dunedin art world. This is Snapshot. What have you got for us this month? Well, at the Brett McDowell Gallery, finishing on August the 12th, we've got Lawrence Aberhart with a show of his recent photographs. And further down the road at the railway station, the Otago Art Society is hosting the Edinburgh Realty Exhibition from August the 14th to September the 18th. This is a collection of paintings from a range of South Island artists. There's always an important date, Ross, in Dunedin's art calendar and a great way of getting exposure to up-and-coming talent. That's right, Sally. Esther Bosshard has a new show at the RDS Gallery opening August the 6th until the 28th. Esther's a graduate of the Otago School of Art and a regular exhibitor at RDS with her oil paintings. I have to declare a preference, Ross, where Esther is concerned. I bought a glass and tamarillos uh, piece of work from the Polytech site exhibition of Esther's three years ago and I still very much love it to this day so I encourage everybody to get along to Esther's exhibition at RDS. I agree. We have a, a painting of a landscape painting of hers, which we loved too. So at, there's a new major show covering the artistic career of Joanna Margaret Paul, opening at the Dunedin Public Art Gallery on August 7th. Curator Lucy Hammonds will discuss this show at the regular Society Coffee Morning, and this is on Wednesday, August the 18th at 10.30 for your diaries. These talks are free to society members, but non-members are asked to contribute a koha. The gallery is producing a book also on the Joanna Paul show, and this will be available at the gallery shop with a standard 20% discount for society members. So there's another reason to join the Otago Public Art Gallery Society. (laughs) Exactly. In Scott's show continues until the 10th of August at the Milford Gallery in Dowling Street. This collection spans a 40-year practice when in the early 70s he started, he started exploring linear patterns. He's explored what can be achieved within strict constraints of line and careful use of colour. I think Ian was the subject of a William Matthew Hodgkins memorial lecture two years ago, which actually brings me uh, to the question, Ross, I think the Hodgkins lecture is coming up again quite soon. That's right. It's scheduled for Sunday, August the 29th at 3 o'clock. Last year, with Vincent O'Sullivan speaking, this event was packed, and we expect large numbers to attend again this year. And so who have we got speaking this year, Ross? David Eagleton, the Dunedin-based current Poet Laureate, is the guest speaker this year. He'll talk on New Zealand landscape paintings with a focus on the South Island. I think that's quite exciting because David Eagleton is uh, a real talent. He's really, really entertaining, so I'd really encourage listeners to get along and listen to that. David was the winner of the Prime Minister's Award for Literary Excellence in 2016, and his articles have appeared in the New Zealand Listener, Art New Zealand and Art News. He has published art gallery essays on a range of leading New Zealand artists, including Ralph Hottery, Michael Parakofai, 
Colin McCann and Geoffrey Harris. So that's the William Matthew Hodgkin Memorial Lecture. Can you tell us something about William Matthew Hodgkin for the listeners who are not aware of the important role he played in the establishment of the gallery and the society? Well, he was the father of the famous Francis Hodgkins, but he was a key founder of the art gallery. He led the establishment of the Otago Art Society in 1875, and soon after, the society began collecting paintings that would form the nucleus of what became the Dunedin Public Art Gallery. He was a man of determination and he had great energy, the son of a Liverpudlian brushmaker. He had already developed a love of art and worked as a copyist at the National Portrait Gallery, and he was also familiar with the other great collections in London. So how did he end up coming to Dunedin, Ross? What do we know about that? He came um, from Melbourne, actually. He ended up being sort of the centre of Dunedin society, great friends and supporters from wealthy families living in Dunedin. So he had great connections to achieving his vision of establishing a local gallery. He was also a talented amateur artist. And I think one of his watercolours is in the latest ground floor show at the Public Art Gallery, uh, Unveiling the Stars. That's right. The annual lecture commemorates a key figure in the establishment of the Public Art Gallery. He was a pioneer and a man of vision. Thanks, Ross. Well, we enthusiastically encourage people to get along to the lecture on the 26th of August. Uh, we ask you to have a look at the Dunedin Public Art Gallery website for f- further details. Thanks, Ross. And now it's time for Viewpoint, our monthly feature. My guest today is a man who many regard as royalty in the New Zealand art scene. The holder of a Queen's Service Medal for Services to the Arts, recipient of a Creative New Zealand Award and, in 2011, the recipient of the inaugural Museum's Aotearoa Individual Achievement Award, Jim Geddes is the curator of the Eastern Southland Gallery in Gore, and he joins us in the studio today. Jim, Namai and welcome. Thank you. So, Gore... Now, can I start by issuing a bit of a disclaimer, or maybe even the opposite of a disclaimer, by saying that I myself am half Goron by birth, and so I do get gore. But it also probably related. You're probably my cousin. How many fingers have you got on your right hand? (laughs) (laughs) It also has to be noted, though, that despite the town's lively art scene and cultural scene, including legendary events such as the Gold Guitars, the world-famous New Zealand icons such as the Big Trout and Sergeant Dan, Gore has also come in for some pretty rude press in recent years. So I want to start by asking you, Jim, as arts royalty, how did you end up in a gallery in Gore? Um, Funny that. I'm actually from here, or not very far away, um, I came back to bludge off my parents for about six months, and that was in 1982. And uh, I had been working in Southland Museum and Art Gallery, and I'd been working in advertising, having left art school prior. Um, and I was really only, like a lot of people from Gore, sort of came back for a short time to um, reevaluate what you wanted to do. And I did a bit of voluntary work with the local historical society. Now, I discovered that they had their eyes on this recently vacated public library building, this Carnegie Library building in the middle of the floor. Carnegie building, yep. They were dead keen to secure it from council for some sort of public cultural use. And because I had worked in a museum and art gallery prior, they suddenly found myself on the organising committee. Um, And suddenly I I was a volunteer in this vacated um, public library building. And And the rest is history. In I think we took we took possession of the key in May 1983. 
and everything went from there. So in 2011, David Luoni interviewed you for his master's thesis, which looked at a case study in museum leadership, something that you modestly professed to know nothing about at that time. And there's a quote from that which, in which you said, go for broke and start from nothing, find an opportunity to the, and, or the community will, and hijack it. So is that what you did? Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I was a volunteer for um, until we officially opened in, in, in May 1984. Um, that was under the Muldoon government, and they had this inspired scheme called the PEP, the Project Employment ah, yes. uh, Scheme. And um, I, by virtue of, of not having a job and being a volunteer, um, I, I was able to secure six months' work, um, government-funded work. And I used that time to develop a program for the, um, for the gallery. And so it was initially going to be historically focused um, facility, but I guess we sort of suggested that you would get more public engagement if you had changing temporary exhibitions and more especially changing temporary art exhibitions. Right. So we developed that and spent six months getting a program together which... Um, it was full steam ahead. And you've since gone on to add a clutch of other museums and art facilities, including the Hokanui Moonshine Museum, the Gore Historical Museum, the Croydon Aviation Museum and the East Gore Arts Centre, which opened last year. The, yeah. the fact is, I guess, notwithstanding its detractors, the fact of the matter is that when it comes to the arts, Gore punches way above its weight, and a lot of that, Jim, is down to you. Now, we're going to talk more about the Arts Centre shortly, but I'd like to start with the East and Southland Gallery, which I think Kevin Roberts of Saatchi and Saatchi um, gave you a bit of marketing gold by re- referring to it as the Gorgonheim, um, and you've said that you founded that in 1984. It started, I think, as an exhibition space. It did. I, I guess the society um, really wanted a community, um, a community gallery. Yes. And, so, and, and that, that worked really well. Um, but, of course, we had a small community and a small community of artists. And we needed to sort of broaden our horizons a bit if we were to sort of engage with the wider public. So I was pretty much given free reign to um, develop a um, program which sort of went outside the district, essentially. Mm. And because I had connections with Dunedin, having gone through art school, I started roping in people that I went to art school with to have exhibitions. And we developed relationships sort of within about the first five years with some of the dealer galleries in Dunedin and and the public art gallery. They became very good friends to us and, and really good supporters. In many respects, we were sort of... Um, a Dunedin gallery slightly removed. You know, okay. we had people like Patricia Bossard and Marshall Seifert and, and in the early days with Peter Entwistle and Fred Dickinson and Helen Telford. They all helped us along and would would um, give, us, give us a boost and put artists their way. So I guess the, you know, the quality of the program grew and we started extending the time frames for the exhibitions and um, and I think a lot of goodwill was created through a, quite a coterie of, of supporters you know, right. from far and wide. So you've laid a fantastic foundation there, obviously, uh, with great connections with people supporting the gallery, using it as an exhibition space. But then uh, along came a major booster in the form of the John Money Collection uh, as a permanent collection for the gallery. And there's a great story behind that, uh, Jim. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, yeah. And, and probably to preempt that, we had some um, pretty interesting um, exhibitions which augmented our district collection, and we started commissioning shows. So we became collection-focused as opposed to... Um, or, or we were always temporary exhibition-focused, but the collection took... Um, became of paramount importance and we worked with people like Marilyn Webb, worked with people like Trevor Moffat commissioning themed shows. So with the collection um, idea firmly fixed, I had the opportunity through an Arts Council grant to travel to the United States to look at how other temporary exhibition spaces but with collections worked. And um, I took a friend with me who was also so from Gore, um, who was good friends with a woman called Liz Money and Liz Money was based in Dunedin, and as we were leaving for the United States, she said, look, if you're going through Baltimore, go and see Uncle John. And we had no idea who Uncle John was, but <laughs> you duly do that. You know, people often say if you're going somewhere, pop in and say It's hello. a fairly typical New Zealand OE yeah, so, experience. So we, we actually did get to Baltimore, and it was about sort of four o'clock in the afternoon, so we got a six-pack of beer and went to Johns Hopkins University, where John had his office. And he was very surprised to see us, but he was um, incredibly courteous and showed us around the office and then invited us back to his house, which was um, in East Baltimore, not very far away from the university. And we entered this place, um, which was just an absolute treasure trove. Were you aware in advance that he had this art treasure trove at his home, or was that a complete surprise? No, no idea. No, it was just it was somebody's relation that we we're just going to go and say hello to and um, pass the time of day with and have a drink with, ideally. Um, but we did notice some substantial works in his office, um, this huge Teo Schoon um, work which um, dominated one wall, some amazing Australian works, amazing African work, and a lot of uh, American contemporary works in there as well. And I think he was a, a patron of Teo Schoon and also, I think, of Rita Angus, if I'm not mistaken. Well, he wasn't a collector. He was, he was a patron. He chose people that he believed in, um, not only from New Zealand, but also from Australia and the United States and, and, and Africa. And he supported them. So he saw his role in life was to provide financial support wherever possible for, for these people. Interestingly, he, um, in the 19, late 1950s and through, throughout the 60s, he commandeered a, um, an old cafeteria space on the street in Baltimore as part of the Johns Hopkins campus. And he um, hosted temporary art exhibitions there, often undergraduate or postgraduate um, shows by students from the local art college. And he would choose two or three of those people and he would follow their progress right throughout their career and he would support them from time to time. The patron and the genuine arts patron sense sense of the word. And a a really interesting person, because I know if you Google John Money, uh, his main claim to fame uh, seems to be that he was a sexologist specialising yes. probably quite a long time before his time in gender issues yes. so yes. a fascinating human being all round really. so and he could have been a concert pianist and it was fascinating going into this almost run down converted shop in you know a quite a challenging neighbourhood in, in East Baltimore and lines and lines of books, and you look at the bookcase, and gosh, there's Jacqueline Sturm, and there's Janet Frame, mm. and there's James K. Baxter. And, and indeed, he, I think he was a lifelong friend of Janet Frame. There's Rita well. Angus dripping from the walls, and it was it's, and it was an extraordinary experience. So this all came as quite a surprise to you. You've landed there from Gore, 
with your box of beer and suddenly you're, I guess, acquainted for the first time with this guy who's in himself really interesting with his amazing art collection. Where did things go from there, Jim? When we got back, we wrote and thanked him because it was, it was a seriously interesting visit and we really enjoyed it. Um, and then he would reciprocate by sending exhibition catalogues. So if he went to an exhibition in Baltimore or Philadelphia or New York, he would buy a catalogue and, and send it to us, kind of <laughs> almost like a first aid parcel, you know, yeah. from, from the outside world. And um, in one of these boxes of books, there was, there was a little greeting card saying, I've always wanted my collection to come back to my home country. Uh-huh. Could you assist me with that in some way? And at that point, I just really couldn't remember what was, what was in the collection. I had a fair idea, mm. and I promised to help. And I duly did. And I um, actually ended up documenting the collection and going around and visiting um, various institutions. And a couple of big ones were very interested in the collection, and they, and they right. were probably destined for a city. But of course it ended up in Gore, and I think a lot of our listeners will be keen to know how John Money, who was born in Morrinsville, lived and worked in Baltimore, USA, ended up donating his collection to a gallery in Gore, New Zealand. It's, it's almost the stuff of fairy tales. He'd, he'd been inspired by smaller centres that he had visited particularly in the United States, was also in Europe, where art had sort of been a catalyst for community development. He talked about Santa Fe, New Mexico a lot, but also some of the artists and dealers that he had worked with had come from small places, and he said, you know, OK, there's, there's, there's a big museum and a big gallery, and the big museum is looking at some of my stuff, and the gallery wants the other stuff, but he said, chances are they're going to go into a store, and he said, if you could do something, then why not go to a small place, because it could be a catalyst for bigger things. And you're thinking, have I got the deal for you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't really, because all we had was a vacant block of land at the back of the building that didn't belong to us. Mm. It was as good as it got. But um, he had faith in us, and um, we also had some really valuable connections within the art world in New Zealand that he knew. And so he saw that people who had, had a degree of faith in us um, probably inspired him to have some faith in us as yes, well. Yes, yes. And so in due course, you ended up with the John Money collection. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was a challenge because we had to build something to put it in. Um, so our, our community committee was suddenly tasked with raising $1.3 million to, um, to build um, a facility. Um, and of course, so we had that scoped, and we had that scoped around the collection. John was came out um, as part of a TV documentary series, which was hosted by historian Michael King. And Michael brought John down to Gore to formally announce his gift. And we had lined up a lot of our community funders and our regional funders who were going to support this project to sort of meet him firsthand to get a good idea of what the project was about. And we had also who turned up was Ralph Hortady and Mary McFarlane arrived from from Dunedin. More New Zealand art royalty. Um, <laughs> and um, and then and we had a lovely time afterwards. Um, a, a, a huge supporter of us was Patrick Carey, who set up the Globe Theatre ah, in yes. Dunedin. We had <laughs> lovely drinks at Patrick's place after the formal announcement. At which point Ralph sort of said, um, "I think I think I'd like to support you guys as well." which uh, enabled us to get the rulers and pencils out and change the plans of the John Money Wing yes. to incorporate the Ralph Hotterdy Gallery. And so I think you've now got 60, in fact, Hotterdy works at the uh, gallery. It's pretty much close to 80 now. Wow. 
Um, Ralph, Ralph and Mary obviously organised the first um, the first gift to us, and then followed on from that was a number of people who were big supporters of Ralph over the years who decided that we should have um, we should have works as well. Yes. Um, so they keep coming, and of course the beauty of that is we can rotate. Um, we can rotate our exhibition. Of course, we can lend work out. Um, if you go to the um, the beautiful Hotterty exhibition in, in, in Christchurch City Gallery at the moment, you'll see several of our really big works there. Um, so it's a real so, proper gallery, <laughs> yeah, lending works yeah. and everything. So, so Jim, tell me, you've got obviously the money collection that comprises a, a, a selection of New Zealand works, but also some interesting, I think, African artworks as well. Yes. And you've got the uh, works by Hotri, which are now numbering around 80. Just briefly, what other permanent artworks are there on display that people who are wanting to come to Gore might see in the gallery if they turn up on any day of the week? Those are essentially the two permanent collections. So right. you've got the, the, the multinational collection, which was in the um, John Money Wing, which we are about to... We rotate from time to time, but we are going to be changing fairly radically before before Christmas. And, of okay. course, we've got changing exhibitions of Ralph. We have a beautiful Len Lai work, which has come to us via um, supporters uh, based in London. Um, and we've got our two temporary exhibition spaces. Now, our two spaces are hosting some pretty interesting shows. Um, we've currently got um, Wellington artist Elizabeth Thompson with Cellular Memory, which is a, which is a stunning show and runs through until August. Um, and then from August um, through until October, we're having a recent acquisitions um, exhibition. Now, we our gifts keep coming. <laughs> um, How lucky are and you? And <laughs> we have some wonderful supporters, not only here but overseas as well, who are supporting um, financially supporting the purchase of works which have a connection with the South, but but by major major artists yes. and some pretty substantial donors who have um, liked the idea that the works are rotational that they can be seen. Um, but also, we've got a significant collection now that we can host really high-quality temporary exhibitions with um, incorporating major artists, New Zealand artists and Australian as well. So fantastic, rich and broad-based exhibition um, constantly on at the East Gore Arts Centre, but I think you've also added to your empire, <laughs> if we yeah. can put it that way, and now we've got the, opened in 2020, the East Gore Arts Centre, which is a printmaking studio, arts education centre, and also uh, a residency for printmakers. In the couple of minutes left for us, Jim, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's a work in progress. Um, what happened when, when we um, bit the bullet and started raising $1.3 million for the John Money Wing? Um, an important church, historic church complex came on the market, um, which we desperately wanted because um, we really, the, the artists who were visiting wanted to do things in the district, work with our collection, work with our resources. We needed studio space, we needed um, accommodation, we didn't have it, so we thought this would be perfect. And R.A. Lawson Church with a much later addition, um, which was which was a community hall. Yes. Um, and of course, in 2001, when we acquired it, we had absolutely no money. We com- we committed everything to the John Money Wing. So um, the Synod, Presbyterian Synod of Otago and Southland um, graciously agreed um, that we could we could put in a tender for the purchase of this property. Now we had sixteen dollars in our acquisitions account. But we had a five thousand dollar overdraft facility, so we nobly put forward a tender for five thousand and sixteen dollars for this 
substantial bit of land and property, <laughs> and they accepted it. Be careful what um, you wish for. So. <laughs> <laughs> That was absolutely wonderful, but then we sort of had the dilemma we were committed to this major project, so we had to do this as we went. So essentially we rented the premises out until we could regroup. And in the process, uh, we had a visit from Mooka Studios of Auckland. Now, that's the, the Belgian couple, Franz Batens and Magda van Gils, who ran Mooka Studios there, who were a residency-based master printing studio. And when we showed them what we'd acquired, um, because they'd come down especially to see the John Money collection and when then they could see the potentials so they said our studio is yours if you can get it down here you can what have a great it. offer um and then on top of that we had the studio print studio of nigel brown um uh presses from marilyn webb from inga dosberg all these important people who have come on board so with the same funders that funded the john money wing um they have systematically funded our studio space to the point that we are now operational yes we're welcoming a uh artist in residence sue cook from Wanganui, who arrives at the end of next week and she's going to be based there for a month um and then we've got a succession of other artists and writers who are coming and utilizing our self-contained flat and also our studio space so it's a work in progress we still have an enormous amount of work to do on the restoration of the main church, which is the 1881 R.A. Lawson model, um, and that is going to ultimately be our art education centre. So we're just what a fantastic addition ourselves for a for a major funding boost for that. What a fantastic addition to your clutch of projects in Gore. And I think with New Zealanders having to find fun in their own backyard for the foreseeable future, Gore and its galleries should definitely be added to everybody's road trip bucket list. Thanks, Jim, for joining us in the studio today. Fantastic story. And thank you for joining us for this edition of Sightlines, which is also available on podcast from the Otago Access Radio website, oar.org.nz. Next time, we'll be exploring the fascinating world of contemporary pottery in celebration of the Diamond Jubilee of the New Zealand Ceramics Association. Don't miss it. I'm Sally McMillan, and Sightlines is brought to you by the Dunedin Public Art Gallery Society. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.